Good morning, listeners. I've slept so well because of Casper mattresses. Just kidding. But uh, hey, our episode is sponsored by a graduate program because, duh, it's Feminist Killjoy's PhD. Specifically, this episode is sponsored by the MA program in Critical Studies at the Pacific Northwest College of Art in Portland because we need to interrogate, intervene, and reimagine like never before. For more information or to apply, visit pnca.edu backslash critical studies. I checked out the program. For example, a class you could take would be feminist theory, queer theory, gender, and sexuality. And I'm wondering if this program actually reads the essay that we're about to read and discuss today on this episode. Thanks for listening. Twenty thousand feet up, breaking all the lights on the doors. We came in through the top floor. Three oars rip right round your jugular. Three oars rip right round. You're listening to Feminist Killjoys PhD, an hour of feminism, pop culture, and politics, as discussed by two professional killjoys. I'm Rachel, and I'm Melody. And today, we are bringing you our second episode of Sex and Love Month with a discussion of the canonical queer theory essay, Thinking Sex, Notes for a Radical Theory of the Politics of Sexuality by DJ Gail Rubin. There's a story to that. I'll tell it later. But first, Melody, where can our listeners find us on the internet? Cue the Kenny G with that (laughs) intro. subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app you get extra fkj points if you leave us a review have you checked the reviews lately on itunes i actually haven't so that'll be our mission for next week is to give a shout out to people who have left us on the social media tip you can follow us on instagram on twitter and facebook on facebook you can just like our page for episode updates but then if you want to be extra and join our community group, you can go to Feminist Killjoys Community WTF Power exclamation point. Did I use that word correctly? I've never used that in a sentence. Oh, was that your first time using extra? No, you didn't quite use it correctly. I didn't think so. I like I liked how you used it though. Who's extra? Scorpios are often a little extra. Oh, they are extra. I get it now. Okay. It is not extra to go to our community page. You'd be like- Oh, poor Scorpios. We love you, Scorpio listeners. (laughs) That was a mean dig. (laughs) They know they're extra. Yeah. And they use that to their advantage. (laughs) I have many friends that are extra. I mean, Scorpios. So, hey, if you are on Spotify like me- in 2018, <laughs> we have a mixtape called Feminist Killjoy's PhD Mixtape, and you can follow it. It has all of our outro music. It's blast. If you have extra dollars and you want to support us feminist media makers and all the labor we do to bring you this podcast, it's like the NPR fundraising drives. It's like, it's not just me coming to the mic and telling you all this stuff. There's a lot of preparation. There's a lot of journalists that we need to feed and hire, and then all the product, 
all that stuff, except yeah. on a smaller level. Anyways, you can go to fkjphd.com and you can see two ways to donate either to our Patreon page directly, or you'll find the birdie. And if you click on the birdie, you can leave a one-time donation. And in either of those donation formats, you can leave your address and we'll put you on the list to send stickers when we have them. I'm going to get a refill on those soon. I should note that Patreon patrons, if you donate $1 a month or more, you get access to our Killjoy Review newsletter, where a lot of our resources from the show end up in email format. And if you donate $5 a month or more, you get access to more bonus content, including bonus episodes. And as always, you can email me and Rachel at fkj.phd at gmail.com. In our 1990s version of our podcast, we have a phone number where you can call and talk to us, 414-858-7818, U.S. number 414-858-7818. Don't be shy. Call us today. How are you doing, Rachel? I'm pretty – I'm doing well. I'm pretty good. I feel like I'm not supposed to – there's a secret thing that I did this week that you're – that I'm not supposed to talk about, like, I guess, ethically or something, but it was – it was a big deal and it was exciting People who follow me on Instagram probably put things together. You should follow me on Instagram, by the way, listeners. I think there's a lot of FKJ listeners that follow us on FKJ page, but maybe you don't want this melody. But I would be happy if people followed me personally, too. Rebel girl without any eyes, Rachel. I did a thing, and it meant that I got to see you, and I'm going to keep it top secret. But it was a nice week because of that, and and an exhausting week. But now I'm not at that thing. <laughs> and I'm, I had a good Saturday. My updates are always like, I taught yoga this morning. I taught sculpt, but I'm well, I'm feeling, uh, I'm feeling happy and good. This will all be much more transparent in like probably the next two episodes. What about you? I'm doing really well. I got a care package from my friends, Logan and Rachel and <laughs> for my birthday. And so I got some very cool related things to cats and news and bikes, my favorite three things, actually. So yeah, (laughs) very thematic. Thank you very much. So I appreciated that. And tomorrow, I'm going to a puppet show about Mr. Rogers. Oh, Melody, that's amazing. That's great. Yeah, in the heart of the beast, they're the people that do the May Day parade here. Yep. Uh, They are putting on a Mr. Rogers play for the next three weekends. It's going to be super awesome. So I'm excited. That's it. Life is good. Otherwise, I can't really complain, all things considered. We have a fun episode today, I think. Mm -hmm. This essay by who I called DJ Gail Gail Rubin, um, the DJ thing is because she's still alive and kicking it. I feel like a lot of times we read these like very important theorists and we're like, oh, they're probably, you know, they're just like these dead people that wrote a cool thing once. But no, she's alive. This is queer theory as a young enough field that a lot of the great canonical thinkers are alive. Although I should make a note. So the canonical refers to the canon, which is sort of a foundational body of literature for a particular field. And actually queer theories and queer studies actually kind of pushes against and rejects that notion, some folks in queer studies. But I'm saying it sort of because it's like a very important essay in the field. Anyway, she is a professor at Michigan and she occasionally will DJ like parties at bars. At, like, oh the my gosh, bar that's amazing. At, um, in Ann Arbor. So DJ Gail Rubin. Uh, So she wrote this essay called Thinking Sex Notes for a Radical Theory of the Politics of Sexuality and possibly the first person and definitely I think the first academic who actually published something to put put all of this stuff 
in words on paper and really took time to rigorously dig into the history of how these things came to be. So it's a really good essay that first is taking to task the notion that sex doesn't matter to politics, that sex isn't a worthy site of study for the academy, that sex isn't political. It goes from there to explain how sex is inherently political, and that's when the sort of historical analysis comes in that is demonstrates so many things that we'll get into in our discussion today. And then she sort of puts forth her her notion, her theory of how a theory of sex can be uh, anti-oppressive and radical and benefit marginalized people. So that's a very broad overview. Um, Melody, I'd love to know what stuck out to you as you were reading this. Well, the first thing that stuck out to me was that I could clearly see how other people have been influenced by her because almost everything that was mentioned in the essay, I thought, oh, yeah, that's similar to the essay I read in this book and this person does something similar and knowing that she wrote this in the 80s and all the stuff that I was Mm -hmm. reading was written maybe like late 90s early 2000s when I was doing a lot of feminism and uh, sexuality research is amazing but also I think speaks to the marginalization of queer theory because nobody ever suggested that I read this essay and they would you know tell me about other people but this never came of came across my desk until you actually suggested it like honestly i'd never oh, read wow, it yeah but i've read yeah. all the concepts that she talks about are super familiar with me because every you know it's right. it's she, you know she started these conversations like you said she put it on paper right. very familiar with the ideas but not familiar that they were all encapsulated in this wonderful essay with right. that said, the things that stuck out to me the primarily were the the sex hierarchy mm-hmm. in our society, the general discussion about what forms of sexuality are encouraged in this country and which ones are not. And then mm-hmm. I loved her discussion about obscenity law and yeah. how basically sexually charged media of any kind is very much banned or censored in a way that does not replicate what we do with violence in the media. And so Mm -hmm. that stuck out to me. It also reminded me of the times that I was studying law. I took a media and law class and I was looking at very important case studies, or I should actually say like legal cases where there was Mm -hmm. pornography being transferred from the United States into Canada and what they did with that. And of course, you know, Mm -hmm. the queer, the queer, the porn, the less likely it would be to be able to get through the the border. And it also reminded me of the book Bound and Gagged by Laura Kipnis, mm-hmm. which I can bring in later. Did we read that together in a graduate class or was that my own thing? We did We did read Bound and Gagged in, I think, Dr. Mary Vavris's class. Yeah. I love that book. I really love that book. So very excited to talk about all of those things. But of course, you know, the stuff that you're interested in too. But those are the big things that really stuck out yeah. to me. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I would love to go in in that direction. I'll summarize some of the key things from the historical stuff that she brings in that I think are important. Yes, please And kind do. of end with obscenity laws, mm-hmm. and then we can kind of go in from there. So one of the things that I think is really useful about this is because it does 
like I said, very clearly document these historical examples of how sex has been a tool of the state to marginalize and further oppress and disempower particular groups. We can see this very clearly. She talks about examples of masturbation. And of course, this intersects a lot with religion. So she gets into to that, the relationship between the church and the state. So thinking about the ways that masturbation, oh, and also the medical field, of course. So there's all these uh, apparatus, apparati working together to um, discipline and punish, to use Foucauldian terms, the population. So the ways that masturbation was seen uh, as an illness and, and a sickness. And there's a thing that she says about children and masturbation that I'm forgetting now. Did you read that part closely? Do you remember? I do know exactly what you're talking about, and I might even have it. There was, I think one of the big things was that masturbation became a site of a sex panic. It created hysteria, uh, hysteria, and I think sex panics are another really important thing that we need to talk about because the idea of a moral panic, and she quotes Jeffrey Weeks on what a moral panic is, is that it crystallizes widespread fears and anxieties and often deals with them not by seeking the real causes of the problems and conditions what they demonstrate, but by displacing them onto folk devils in an identified social group, often the immoral or degenerate. Sexuality has had a peculiar centrality in such panics, and sexual deviants have been omnipresent scapegoats. So this, for example, would be something like the AIDS crisis becoming an issue and a problem about gay men rather than an illness like any other illness, like cancer or like any other illness that we don't sexualize, that needs to be addressed by thinking about why people are dying so quickly, which is a result of economic injustice, pharmaceutical companies, uh, and government neglect. So that is an, that is a, a, a prime example of, of how um, a moral panic and specifically a sex panic takes an issue that has nothing really to do with homosexuality at its at its root and turns it into a gay panic in that case. I'm jumping around history here, but that feels uh, really important and something she talks about. We can also think very simply about the ways that sexuality has been used to uh, further create racism. Of course, the construct of the hypersexual black man, man, which we've seen since the beginning of dealing black people and bringing them into our country, where they've been held up as threats of raping white women. And of course, we still see remnants of that today. And then the slave all- owners r- rape the women right. slaves. And- right. At, right. As a, so, so then sex becomes also a tool of punishment because rape has been used by people in power as a tool of, as a tool of punishment and control and, and colonialism for the beginning of, of this nation as well. She references John D'Amelio, who's another sort of uh, canonical queer theory person, queer studies person, I should say. He's a Marxist who talks about the ways that capitalism and gay identity have worked hand in hand. And how, first of all, capitalism enabled industrial, well, the industrial revolution specifically enabled gay men to have a third place in which they could actually materialize their desires. So homosexual desire is predates capitalism and urban, urban iterations of capitalism, but the actual identity of gayness was partly enabled because of these uh, these factory settings and then the gay bars that became also a part of urban capitalist um, industrial life. But then it also talks about the ways in which homosexuality can be a threat to capitalism in that gay people don't biologically produce 
children, you know, writ law, I mean, obviously, of course, gay people have children, but um, as a concept, homosexuality means you can't, isn't, it's not reproductive sex, which harms and threatens capitalism when capitalism in the US looks like buying private property so that you can have room to put your children, um, having your white picket fence, 2.5 kids, spending money to send them to college, and so on and so on. So reproductive futurity, as, as some people would call it, is integral to the capitalist project. And so gay people threaten that. And yet gay identity was kind of also enabled because of it. So it's a really interesting essay she brings in that. She says more, but uh, she also does talk about obscenity laws. So I have a quote I'd love to read, and then I'd love to toss it over to you to talk about some connections to some of about more contemporary examples. Is that cool? Yeah. And actually, before you get into obscenity law, can I follow up with some stuff about masturbation, if I may? Mm-hmm. It's this general idea that the 19th century, well, especially what was going on in this country, there was a lot of moral panic about sexuality in general, and especially with children in masturbation. And so she argues it started in the 19th century, but we're still having the same conversations today. And even though she wrote it in the 80s, we are now this almost 40 years ago. Wow. We're still having the same panics with, you know, we had that whole issue with sexting, kids and sexting, not the uh, release of those photos non-consensually, but just the idea that young people would be sexting in the first place. So a lot of panic about that. And it, it, also reminded me a lot of my research that I did with biking around that time. And so in our country, morality, Christian morality was a huge deal. And so there was similar conversations about women actually using their bike seats as a form of masturbation. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that was part of the panic is like, we're giving them this Mm. phallic thing to sit on and that they can like rub themselves with it. They made bicycle seats with the vulva section cut out, like where your vulva would sit. Yes. They cut it out. Wow. Because that's how much they feared masturbation. I think masturbation in general, because it's a sin, because it doesn't lead to reproduction, that panic, and this is connected to the obscenity laws too, because what she argues is that the obscenity laws that were started in the late 1800s are the same laws that we use today, even if they've been tweaked a little bit. And that is very true. And I think a lot of the stuff that she's talking about with masturbation, the sins, the Christianity, the the need for reproduction, the sexual hierarchy, it's all based on morality, not sinning yep. and reproducing. And if you're not part of, you know, if you're not reproducing, then you are lower on the hierarchy amongst other behavior, sexual behaviors. Yeah. And then I just wanted to throw in one other thing. Some listeners might not know that in the – God, it's got to be around the same time, maybe a little bit later in the medical world – Women who were actually diagnosed with hysteria were masturbated by their doctors to relieve stress and anxiety. Mm, Yeah. And so that's like a different way of looking at masturbation that it's like, okay, so this whole time we've been – women and masturbation is like a whole episode because what we were taught from very early on is very different than what people with penises – I should say people with vaginas, people with penises – uh, we're taught very much socialized as as boys and girls. Mm. So there's this panic about masturbation if you choose to do it yourself. So then women weren't masturbating to like relieve stress and sexual tension and all that stuff that masturbation is good for. 
And so when they come in like out of their minds and what they would be called as hysteric, they would masturbate them. And then it it like it proved it was proven that it made women feel better. Like no shit. Right. It's part of self-care. Yeah. You've talked about that as like taking care of yourself sexually is a part of self-care. And yeah. so that's just another interesting part of masturbation history and the use of vibrators as well. When used medically by a doctor, a male doctor, I would assume, on right. a woman. Yep totally yep. okay but when you used yourself for sexual empowerment or sexual fulfillment not okay because as the essay says any form of masturbation no matter who it was was seen as less than like it wasn't a pure right. form of sex so it was nothing right. but sinful but if it's medically induced then it's okay very similar with marijuana right. if you want to connect it to an, an issue now it's like well smoking weed now if it's through for medical reasons is totally okay not sinful won't put you right. in jail you're not a, a new since, but if you're smoking weed now and you're, it's not for medical reasons, it's a problem. Right, completely. I mean, that that in particular, but we could talk about it with sex too, the ways that that reveals the, the inherent racism of what becomes criminal and what becomes doesn't, of course. So, but on the note of, of criminalization, I love this quote that I'm about to read to get us more into obscenity stuff as well as sex work specifically. I love this dig that she makes. So I'm going to read the whole thing. The anti-obscenity laws also form a part of a group of statutes that make almost all sexual commerce illegal. Sex law incorporates a very strong prohibition against mining sex and money, or I'm sorry, against mixing sex and money, except via marriage. In addition to the obscenity statutes, other laws impinging on sexual commerce include anti-prostitution laws, alcoholic beverage reg regulations, and ordinances governing the location and operation of adult business. The sex industry and the gay economy have both managed to circumvent some of this legislation, but that process has not been easy or simple. The underlying criminality of sex-oriented businesses keeps it marginal, underdeveloped, and distorted. Sex businesses can only operate in legal loopholes. This tends to keep investment down and to divert commercial activity towards the goal of staying out of jail rather than delivery of goods and services. It also renders sex workers more vulnerable to exploitation and bad working conditions. If sex commerce were legal, sex workers would be more able to organize and agitate for higher pay, better conditions, greater control, and less stigma. So, the dig that she makes comes really early on. She says sex law incorporates a very strong prohibition against mi mixing sex and money except via marriage. And I just love that she's calling out that marriage is an institution in which sex is a thing that happens according to pretty much every, you know, according to the according to the church, often according to the state and perhaps not explicitly, but implicitly in this way that the state, it rewards couples financially for getting married because of the tax breaks, right? Which is why the same-sex marriage yep. movement had this sort of economic argument to it. But I love that she's pointing out that actually we do do this thing where we have sex to help us basically make you know make money in a in a way kind of because if you're saving money then you're then you're making money but we would never talk about marriage as sex work but it's also but it's also this very feminist comment the sort of oftentimes kind of like marxist feminist second wave comment about like the ways in which women do labor inside of relationships which sometimes does mean having sex sometimes when they don't want to or you know and all the emotional labor anyway i like that part of the quote and I like, of course, all the other pro-sex work comments, but I thought that could be a good jumping off point to talk about these anti-obscenity laws and other connections that you made. Yes, the anti-obscenity laws, I think what it did is it made sure that even heterosexual marriage -y sex stuff 
was considered obscene early on. And one way that you can see that is through the Motion Picture Association. So when films were coming out around the same time, so film got going in like the 1920s, so it wasn't very much past this. So anti-obscenity laws are more for like printed stuff, so porn magazines, radio, and all that stuff was regulated by the FCC anyways, or the Federal Radio Commission at the time. Obviously, obscenity was just like from the get-go, like not allowed. But then within the Motion Picture Association, they just decided really early on that they were going to govern themselves. And so they didn't have to actually follow the laws of the federal government. But I guess it was because of who was running the Motion Picture Association. They decided to kind of go along in the same way. And so they had this thing called the Hayes Code. It's also known as the Motion Picture Association Code. But it was this list of do's and don'ts. And so that's why when you look at very early film, including silent black and white film, You will see absolutely no queerness, no gayness, and I'll asterisk that and come back to that in a second. But also, you will see very little kissing, even between a man and a woman. People that are married don't sleep in the same bed. They sleep in separate beds. (laughs) And that actually like kind of continued into the TV world when TV first started. And so the moralities were embedded in media right away. And the asterisk that I wanted to say about the queerness is that there's this amazing documentary and book called The Celluloid Closet. And they look into the history of how queerness, although totally banned by the Motion Picture Association, but also societally like not okay at all, sinful determined to be obscene, etc. The filmmakers found ways to get beyond the, the Hayes Code and beyond. They go a little bit into when it turned into the rating system, but that wasn't until the 1960s. So this like Hayes Code that I just told you about, it didn't go away until we had colored TV. So that was a very long time for this code to exist within the film industry. And so people got smart. The film and the book talk they kind of show you how they inserted queerness and of course if you watch these films today and you're queer like you can see it you know it's like just doing a queer reading of anything but Mm -hmm. it's very obvious uh how it was but it was also it's also a really sad time because i remember one of the actors i think said visibility at any cost so yeah even though it was shitty representations it was like at least i saw myself and he identified as a sissy so like at least i saw a sissy on the screen, even if they were the butt of the joke and ridiculed, at least they got a sissy on the screen instead of not at all. So yeah, I think that was Harvey Firestein. Yes, it was. was, Thank you. I think we've talked about that film before and people should definitely check it out. I think those are really important examples to bring in. And I think the obscenity laws are most clear in books. So like what gets banned from libraries, but also in film, because even though the obscenity laws don't apply to film, they often kind of follow suit of what society is doing because they never want to get in trouble with the government or with citizens. So they kind of just follow the like norms of the of the time. And there's this other great documentary called This Film Is Not Yet Rated. Have you seen that one, Rachel? I have. Yeah, I showed that one too. Oh, yeah. And that one actually in terms of pushing the boundaries of sexuality, like playing that in class is can be risky because they're like showing things that got an NC-17 rating. But one of the arguments that's made in that film, film 
lawmakers were getting NC-17 ratings for showing the face of a woman having an orgasm, but you could get an R rating for showing a mer- like a horror film where a woman is like getting stabbed in the breast or something. So mm-hmm. it's it's a sex organ, but because it's like violent, it's okay. But if you're showing a woman having an orgasm, just the face, like not a close-up shot of her vagina or anything, it's... NC-17. And the filmmaker of Boys Don't Cry especially was like really livid about that because her film was one that got NC-17 rating for the sex scenes. Yeah, she said they were totally fine with Brandon, the trans man in the movie, being brutally gang raped. (sighs) But Lana had an orgasm that lasted more than 30 seconds when Brandon was going down on her and all you saw was her face. And yeah, she had to cut the, the orgasm scene but didn't have to cut the brutal rape scene, which is just wild. And the other part of that argument is that it's not it's not all orgasms, it's just women's orgasms cuz often right. the media logic is like well you know when somebody when a couple is done with sex if it's somebody with a penis and a vagina because the the person with the penis ejaculates and they that's like how you know, right? You don't see it, but right. it's always like them. And then mm-hmm. It gets into like, you know, basic sex education and just like it's just totally unrealistic, but yeah. that's the other that problem. literally is every sex scene. It's ridiculous. In mainstream film. I mean, there's... Right, right. Of course. Yeah. (sighs) Yeah. Speaking of that, I'm going to put this on our resource list. There was an article that just came out in the New York Times, like a long read essay called What Are Teenagers Learning from Online Porn? And I highly recommend reading it. It was really interesting. Um, This reporter studied and talked to high school students that are part of this group that's actually happening in Boston. And I didn't know about it until I read the article. And it's a porn literacy class in a high school. So they actually watch pornography and talk about- Yeah, pretty fucking amazing, right? Yeah, but also, wouldn't you just have like boners all the- like male and female versions of boners all the time? Uh, I mean, possibly, but if you're watching in a setting that's like an, like an, an, like an analytical setting, I don't know. I know if there's like, like, for example, when we do show things in class that, you know, I've shown films that have like sexy scenes that if I was like at home, I might be, oh, like, like Mm -hmm. that's hot. But when I'm, but when I'm in class, I'm like, I am deeply uncomfortable. (laughs) Yeah, but you're also over 30. Like you don't have the, yeah, um, I just remember, true, true, true. I just remember sexual energy in high school. Like it was just, it, it was illogical at points, but. Anyways, yeah. that's totally beside yes. the point. I still think they should have the class. Yeah. And and I think it is interesting to think about being media literate around sex in, in films that aren't deemed porn and also sex in porn. And th- it was it was fascinating because, of course, there were moments that I think they be- can become – the middle part of the article was kind of, I think, being a little judgmental of BDSM, but specifically in the way that BDSM sort of translates to teenagers, which I will say like feels risky or or troubling perhaps in some ways. But I also want us to get to the idea of age in a second because Gail Rubin talks explicitly mm-hmm. about that. But then later they had some feminist porn makers who had, had just much a much uh, broader and more expansive understanding of kink, I think. Maybe this is a good time to segue into Gail Rubin's t- discussion about age and we can do that mm-hmm. via she she has these two charts in her article, which is kind of rare in humanities essays, uh, and I really like them. They're really great teaching tools for any of you teachers out there. So she has her first image in the article is what she calls the charmed circle, and it's it's a circle, and there's a big circle and a littler circle inside of it, and then there's all of these intersecting lines. And she basically said that the good, normal, natural 
quote unquote blessed sexuality is all the stuff in the middle, which in- includes heterosexual, married, monogamous, procreative, non commercial, at home, so not in public, in a relationship, same generation, in private, no pornography, bodies only, and vanilla. Boring. Sorry. (laughs) The outer limits, bad, abnormal, unnatural, quote-unquote damned sexuality, is homosexual, unmarried, promiscuous, non-procreative, commercial, um, alone or in groups, casual, cross-generational, in public, pornography, with manufactured objects, and sadomasochism. Yes. So... Again, this stuff kind of seems like, well, obviously, yeah, that's what people consider good. That's what people consider bad. But Gail is actually like saying like, here is a chart that we can actually like map history Mm -hmm. onto why this is. And certainly we can see examples of that all throughout. So I want to unpack those more, but it's very similar to this sex hierarchy, which kind of says the same thing, just in a different image. So she has these three walls, it's, and one is a tall wall, which is like the good sex, one's a medium-sized wall, which is an area of contest, and then one is the bad, the small wall, which is like bad sex. So the good sex is the heterosexual married monogamous, areas of contest. So in this chart, she's saying like, okay, here's some room where people are like, we're maybe not going to condemn you forever but this isn't good the unmarried heterosexual couples promiscuous heterosexuals masturbation long-term stable gay male couples lesbians in the bar promiscuous gay men's at bathhouses in the park and that's getting lower and lower and then she talks about the really bad in society sex which is she uses the word transvestites this is written in and transsexuals because this is written in the 80s some people still identify as both of those most people don't but that is the words that she's using um fetishists sadomasochists people who do it for money and things that are cross-generational with that melody what do you think Okay, well, first off, for listeners, this is from the 80s. So like digital high def copies are hard to find, but we'll get these images out for you. But I think another a good way to think about it is the chart or the cherished circle is like a non moving chart that's like it's like a pie chart but then the other the sexual hierarchy the actually the way that it's drawn is more like on a continuum so it's on mm-hmm. it's movable my my first question was where does non-monogamy come in? Because she puts monogamy as good sex, but is it a major area of contest or is it the worst if you're non-monogamous? And like so, non-monogamous in an already monog- in a like stable relationship. Yeah. So this I think is really interesting because she differentiates between like if you are straight, you can be pro- well. She uses promiscuous, but heterosexual again the yeah. 80s, so not non-monogamous that wasn't as widely used but if you're straight you can still be sort of in the contested territory this is her theory you know she's theorizing and and sort of sweeping claims but if you're gay you have to at least be coupled um you can't you can't be non-monogamous because you already have like this mark against you as other because you're gay but then you would win a point if you were monogamous does that does that make sense so i think that's just an interesting note about it but if if are you asking just like like contemporarily how people think you know what i didn't connect promiscuous with non-monogamy because i don't think they're the same things but now that you explained it that way i get it i think she's using them in that way 
because non-monogamy just wasn't talked about like that. Yeah. And I'm just kind of visualizing our society today. And like you mentioned, the gay marriage push that we had a few years back, that was one of the queer critiques of that was that like, you're only focusing on the acceptable gays. And this is a perfect example. I mean, just looking at this, it's like, well, it's still the case now that we will fight for the rights of normative gay people that are in monogamous relationships. But you start talking to us about trans rights or the rights of queer people getting health care, like, forget it. Like, that's not worthy of legislation or interrogation. Written in the 80s with different words, but same problem. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And this is something that really struck me because I teach an essay on non-monogamy and consensually, or the, the, it's a social science article by a friend of mine and some other authors. She and the, and her colleagues wrote the social scientific essay on consensually non-monogamous relationships, did a lot of research on that, actually, many essays. And I teach one of, one of the articles and I get a lot of pushback from students where I was teaching the longest at a Catholic private school. So I think perhaps the student body might be a little bit different possibly than the general population. It's hard to say, but in general, they were not on board with it. Hmm. So I can see, again, like based on what we've been talking about with morals and society, that we're still at a point in our society where monogamous marriage is the end goal. You know, when I talk to my students about Mm -hmm. hegemony, it's like, that's the greatest example. It's like the American dream. And then you're supposed to get married and have, like you said, 2.5 kids. And that's, that's the goal. But I feel like, and correct, maybe you push them on this. I'm curious. But first off, the role that social media dating apps have played in what I've witnessed as being like more open to like dating multiple people, the love and the all the kind of morality is taken out of it. It's just like, you're hot. Let's have some sex. Okay. I would feel like the young people that I do talk with, they seem to be pretty, you know, for the lack of a better word, like promiscuous or non-monogamous, like dating multiple people. So I feel like that is in the realm of people's experiences. It's not like they've never met somebody who's been dating two people at the same time or struggling with who to choose if they had to be serious with one. But then the other thing is, like, we all have crushes, right? So just think about that. You're dating somebody, but you still have a crush on the person in your class. Think about what it would be like if you could actually make out with them and nobody would be mad. Like, it would actually be all consensual, wouldn't that be great? If you admit to yourself, everybody has crushes on other people. And one reason why I think my relationship is so strong is that we openly talk about who we have crushes on because we're very confident in who we are and who we are to each other. And it's not threatening to have a crush on another person. And so then the discussion of acting on that crush, even if you decide as a couple that it's not for you, that's not very far out of the realm of just lived experiences. And the last thing I want to say is a lot of people, especially heterosexual marriages, they end because somebody cheated on the other person. And I know a lot of people that are poly. So I'm just speaking from my lived experiences is that that realm of like cheating or having an affair, like it just doesn't exist because you have open communication. Like I'm really, I really like this person. Can I, you know, there's a whole process. There's lots of communication. So I wonder if the students knew more about that world and like kind of walking them through it if they would change their mind because I'm actually really surprised that there's so much pushback especially from the younger generation yeah so my response to that is I did push them on that and I did try very intentionally to 
explain that world to them. And I showed this like really lovely video of this like wonderful non-monogamous couple. And we sort of like walked through their life with them. And it yeah. was, it, it, it seems very persuasive, <laughs> not to them. They were, um, they were not, wow. they were not sold many, many of them. I should, you know, I'm yeah. not making a sweeping statement. Um, I think the thing about Tinder is yes, there is more sexual freedom of people being open to sleeping with a lot of different people, which I think has been the case, you know, prior, obviously to dating mm-hmm. apps. But the issue is that once you are in a relationship, you have to be like loyal. The word loyal came up a lot Mm. Um, and faithful and all of these very sort of traditional concepts. So, yes, Hmm. but you can sleep with all the people. And this is this is some voices that I heard from some students. There seemed to be what I would explicitly call some slut shaming about Mm -hmm. the people in a relationship who were that was a poly relationship. But not – I don't get that idea of slut-shaming when we talk about women having sex with whoever they want sort of outside of relationships. So I really think the difference is, is the relationship. And to tie it into one of our favorite pop culture sites of struggle, The Bachelor, I bring that up a lot when I teach non-monogamy because The Bachelor and The Bachelorette is a show about non-monogamy. I mean, and even to the point where the – the people sometimes sleep with three different people within three different days that at that point they've developed, you know, some type of close relationship with. But the end goal of that show is normative, monogamous, heterosexual that's, marriage. That's how they bring the hegemony back. You can right, have little exactly. breaks in it, but. Right, exactly. So I think my, I think that the comments that I'm referring to from uh, the times that I've taught this article really reference that buying into that logic like it is okay up until a point but then once you are together you need to be faithful and really honing into this sort of like traditional language i should also say that i've had some really good responses to this article i had a woman leave a a, a relationship with a possessive boyfriend because she was like oh my gosh people can have freedom and Mm -hmm. i'm realizing how bad my relationship was Mm -hmm. um so i've had really great responses too but i was i've been consistently surprised with the amount of students of that generation that are still not sold on it. And again, it could be it could be where I've been teaching. And this is not a this is not a criticism. It's just an observation of the continued variance of opinions, even in generation. Well, what are they now? Are they still millennials that we're teaching? There's a new one. Is it Generation Y? One of my students referred to herself not Mm -hmm. as a millennial, but like the next one down. Yeah, because I think now we're, we're on getting, the cusp with yeah, our students now. Yeah. yeah, and just one thing I wanted to say back to that, I'm sure because I'm sure a lot of my students would probably have the same response. It's so fascinating that it's not okay to critique gayness anymore, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Basically, they've learned that sexual experiences that are not theirs are okay, and because it's other right. people's experiences, mm-hmm. right? So then, in the same way, it's like okay, so. That's cool. Like, you don't have to be poly. Nobody's going to make you be poly. You don't have to find a partner that's going to be poly. You can find your monogamous person. But can you at least understand from, like, an intercultural perspective, like, why they're doing this? Like, why this is a a different experience and why it works for them, right? Like, that's that's another particular thing that I'm like, huh, that's – if it was a different generation, but, like, these are the people that are, like – down with queerness and like, you know, don't, for the most part, you know? Well, I think it shows that that non-monogamy is still an early uh, concept that we're working on for like creating social change around and social consciousness raising about. So it's it's still early stages, I think, of people being, there's still a lot of stigma. I mean, my poly friends, it's the same way that gay folks, I mean, to the, and still in 
many contexts, gay, gay folks still have to, and queer folks, I'm sorry, I'm falling back. Reading Rubin, I'm just like using gay and using all the non, non-contemporary non language. Queer folks still have to determine if if or they will or will not come out of the, the closet, right? To, to tell people that they have to make this like announcement kind of. And some of my poly friends, like I was at a work function, like a work event. One of my friends had a work party and both of her partners were there. And I was with a group of them and one of her partners and I was like about to say something that kind of would have outed her and I was like oh fuck like I have to like they might think that this person is just like her friend like not her other partner so I you know I have to navigate that there's just so much that doesn't allow for it like wedding invitations and you know you can't bring more than one person which is understandable like it's an economic whatever so there's there's still a long way to go I want to say two two quick things of our. I'm doing the asterisks, the the caveat. What is what do we say that I do? I'm cleaning it up. What does John say? Um, Clean it up, Rachel. So one thing you said, everybody has crushes on people. That is probably mostly true, but those crushes don't necessarily have to be sexual. And also, some asexual folks don't have crushes at all. So just making space for asexual exper- people's experiences. And second, cheating can exist in poly and non-monogamous relationships. It means that you break a rule that you've come up with together. You know, if you aren't supposed to sleep with certain people, if you're not supposed to sleep in, in you know, have sex in the same bed that you sleep in with your partner, like cheating can happen. And at one point, you said like the concept of cheating doesn't exist for them and it's like well it it does it's just not what other people think of it as does that make sense yes thank you thank you for definitely cleaning that up and i'm in agreement with all of that i just i wasn't as intentional with how i was explaining all of that so thank you it's all good all good so i really really want to talk about age can we talk about age and intergenerational stuff of course so this feels like one of the hardest conversations to have. It's this, what Gail Rubin is pushing back against is that we have age of consent laws that ban people who are older sleeping with people younger. And I think that it is pretty widely accepted, especially by feminists and queers, that young people have sexuality, children have sexuality, Teenagers definitely have sexuality. I just talked about this porn literacy class in a high school. So there's like lots of acknowledgement that teenagers have sex, they're sexual beings, and that that's okay. But we are still really not okay if a person who is above the 18 has, who is above the age of 18 has sex with somebody who's under the age of 18. Now, I am a product of our society. So I also get really uncomfortable when I think of particular age gaps. But one of the things that I think Ruben is pushing is that these age of consent laws can become pretty arbitrary because we all have these sort of arbitrary lines in our head where it's like, well, sure, a 19 and a 17-year-old, sure, but like not a 24-year-old and a 15-year-old, like no. And there's part of me that it feels like that, like definitely not a 24-year-old and a 15-year-old, but why, why? Gail Rubin basically wants us to ask why. And this also has an important history because gay male culture historically has relied on intergenerational sex because just of the ways in which gay sex had to be hidden and the ways that, you know, things that we would feel really icky about in terms of gay men in positions of power, noticing boys who might be having sort of like queer moments of desire that was being noticed, like there would be these incidents where like that was the only kind of gay sex that was happening in in a lot of situations just because of how hush hush and behind closed doors it had to be and secret. So there's 
a lot of gay male culture, particularly older generations, kind of have trouble with saying we have to, for example, completely stigmatize Kevin Spacey, not only for sexual assault, which I think we, we, you know, we should absolutely say that the assault that he participated in was not okay, is the real problem that he was older than the boy. Gail Rubin is saying maybe not. And that's fucking risky shit to say out loud. So what do you think? I think that I learned a lot about this issue through a book by uh, Pat Cliffia called Public Sex, The Culture of Radical Sex. And I s- explicitly remember the sections about children. And so, for example, something that was said was children start to experience like sexual feelings, uh, abilities to have orgasms, all that good stuff by the age of 12. And so having sexual consent be all the way up to age 18, she call or they call lunacy like they have a very strong opinion about children being able to be sexual beings so this like arbitrary line at 18 isn't actually representing biologically what happens and it also then sets up really weird divisions of like how old you have to be to consensually have sex with somebody especially around that age bracket so now that we're older, if I start dating somebody that's 45, that doesn't seem weird at all. It's like normal, right? right? But if I was 18 dating somebody who's 28, everybody yep. would be like freaking out because the understanding is that it goes back to agency, which is a concept we talked a lot with with porn and sex work, is that children somehow don't have the agency. Like, are we not as mature? Sure. Like, mm-hmm. I would hope that my parents would have some good conversations with me if that was the case, if I was dating somebody older. But of course, in our society, especially in the Midwest, that is not a topic of conversation that very mm. often happens in the family that I grew up in and other families that I'm aware of. There's a lack of agency given to kids. There, we're basically ignoring that we have sexual urges when we're teenagers. And then so what are we supposed to do with our sexual urges for all that time? And especially if we're attracted to older people like you and I, well, I'll speak for myself. I've definitely been attracted to older people, especially when I was younger, because you I w- know that I have to. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just don't, you know, I don't want to. Yeah, assume. no, I know. I appreciate it. Especially because I was a lot more mature than some mm-hmm. of my counterparts. And I feel it's the same for a lot of women, young girls that like, sometimes we mature more. And my my mom once accused me of being a lesbian because I never dated anybody in my high school. I appreciate that, mom. It's because, like, look around. No matter what gender, you know, if I was going to choose to date a boy, they're flipping boys. Like, they're so immature. I just wasn't interested in them. So I ended up hanging out with older dudes all the time. And it wasn't – and yeah, it was like it probably looked weird, but that's just how I was. And like the fact that there's laws around it, it just doesn't even – it's just really frustrating because – It's frustrating, but also I understand the fears that people – that it's not safe, that horrible things can happen. I get that. But horrible things can happen no matter what. I mean, young people can destroy each other and, you know, I get that. But you were saying a lot of the fear comes from the young boys dating the older men. Yeah. Never mind any agency that they have either, (laughs) like enjoying that. Um, The fear is always that they don't have agency in being able to choose. If I had the sort of knowledge of myself and the world around me, I probably would have made different decisions about sex and who I dated a lot when I like a lot differently than, you know, when I was 16, 17, 18 years old. Oh, my God, ditto. But that doesn't mean that I like that doesn't mean that I feel like it harmed me. It just means that, yeah, my brain, you know, I, I, 
I was I wasn't as mature as I am now. I mean, clearly, but that doesn't mean that I feel like it. I don't feel like it was harmful. I mean, some some you know some of it the the non consensual stuff that the assaults that I experienced were were, but not the the times I was with older older people older boys at that time men or yeah like it just didn't and even the shit that I wouldn't do now I don't know it just it's kind of just part of sexual learning kind of too. I think it's also like it kind of doesn't leave room for what if it was just two people were attracted to each other. They probably don't have much in common because they're generations apart, but they just like want to fuck and like be done with it. It's so stigmatized. I appreciate your response. And I think it's really, really hard for people to get on board with this. But I think when you frame it as simply revealing the arbitrariness of the age of consent law, especially if you want to take it to the most minimal case of like a 17 year old and a 19 year old, people have to understand that like, oh, yeah, that's kind of like super arbitrary. And also, I always think this is important to note, age of consent laws have also been used to perpetuate racism and um, mm-hmm. the prison the prison system because there are more than one reported cases of racist white mothers getting black men put in jail for having sex consensually with their white girlfriends, their daughter, so they can be used totally harmfully to to punish. And, and any any law like this, of course, the criminalization of any sex is, of course, related to the expansion of the prison system, which obviously I'm not not all about either. So yeah, well, thanks for talking through that. I, I kind of feel nervous. We haven't had an episode where I've been like, super nervous about what people might respond but this is this is a tough one so i would love to hear people's thoughts on it on our page or if you want to email us or anything yeah and i'll make sure that i pull out uh, <clears throat> uh, some quotes from pat cliffy in the public sex book because when i was reading that book i was like this is really uncomfortable but i remember mm-hmm. like the children's section was the section that i really remembered because i was like they make such a great point and like one thing that I just wanted to mention is so they argue that in the name of protecting young people, we have abandoned them, leaving them vulnerable while making it difficult as difficult as possible for them to have any of the rewards of sex. So basically, we're saying like it's off limits to you and we're like treating children like they're asexual instead mm-hmm, of having mm-hmm. honest conversations with them about this stuff. And I mm-hmm. think that's also part of the problem that obviously this essay that we're talking about today doesn't get into because it's not the point. But a lot of the stuff with children and sex, I think, could be mitigated by like having open, honest conversations between parents or other adults and their children. Because I know sometimes kids don't want to talk to their parents about vibrators and having having relationships with somebody older, but having somebody in your life that's older that you can talk to about that stuff openly, I think would help. Because otherwise, it's just a panic. And it's like, and then kids get treated like they're dumb. And then they just rebel. They're just like, whatever, Mm -hmm. like, fine, you don't think I can handle this? I'm going to go handle it by myself then like that. It doesn't, it's not helpful. So they are advocating for children, but children's sexuality, because a lot, a lot of people, not all, but a lot of people started having sexual urges way before they were 18. I will not go on this tangent, but just a side note then is is talking about sex toy shops and who's allowed yeah. to come in. And I think feminist sex toy shops have been trying to get around that law. You know, the best time to have a vibrator is or whatever sex toy you need for your body parts is when you're a teenager and you're kind of or not allowed or people, I don't know, I can go on and on about this, but yep. it's yep. important for them to for people going through puberty and above to have access to sex education including toys so uh gail rubin did her job she got us got us so yay well thanks for talking through it that was fun what are you reading watching listening to i feel like we need jingles 
for our segments, and which you do like organically, but like it'd be fun to have like official proper jingles. Reading, watching, and listening to with Rachel and Melody. That was solid. I just Papa. made that up. It was amazing. I like it. I'm still reading The Politics of Everybody slowly uh, that I mentioned last week. I also was rereading Jasper Puar's Terrorist Assemblages this week for a presentation. And I have a book club, one-on-one book club. My friend Gabriel, shout out Gabriel if you are listening. I love them very much. We are going to discuss the new Eli Clare book, which I haven't even opened yet, but I'm going to read tomorrow before I meet my friend watching i don't think i've ever talked on the show about how i watch this is us i just told the facebook group but do you know what that show is i've heard many things about it okay it's like a drama right it's a drama it's like a cheesy main mainstream network and people get really into it and they're really emotionally connected to the characters yes you can count me in on that group (laughs) i am it is it's you know it's I think it's it has interesting things happening because there's some cool race things and they talk about fatness in particular ways that are usually not great, but there's also a very human fat character, so that's good. But I, I do, I am hooked on the show and I'm very invested in the character. So uh, the episode that aired after the Super Bowl, which I didn't watch after the Super Bowl because I was obviously asleep, but um, I, I watched it on my Hulu. Because I go to bed at 8 o'clock. Uh, I go to bed at 9.30. Thank you very much. Um <laughs> It was like a big deal episode. It, it revealed the cause of a – it was like basically a death scene that we all knew was coming. It was as as sad as you would think it was going to be, and oh, I was feeling all I'm the sorry. feelings. sorry. Oh, that's the it's worst. It's okay. It's But it's, it's good. No, but it's – but like it's like we we like want to feel <sighs> that though too. Yeah. Like it was a cathartic cry. Very uses and, then, and gratification of you, media theory. Uses and gratification, yes. why we use media. Yeah. Sometimes it's for exactly. emotional reasons. Okay, going on. Exactly. Listening to um, a bunch of podcasts, I, I'll give another. I have many episodes that I've listened to this week, but uh, Gender Reveal, uh, Molly's friend Z was on, and they did a question and answer that I was really excited by some of the, the things that came up in that. So I recommend everybody go check out their show, Gender Reveal, which we highlighted on our feed a couple weeks ago. Still good. It's still worth checking out. So if you haven't yet, do it. What about you? Um, I've been watching a bunch of Super Bowl ads, actually, because this week in class, we were talking about advertising and PR. And so I had my students tweet out different examples of their Super Bowl ads that really stuck with them. And so I've been kind of going through and watching them because I was in a cabin during the Super Bowl. So a lot of people brought up the Dodge Ram, Martin Luther King one. People love the the Tide one, uh, the Cardi B Alexa commercial. Uh-huh. So we were just, it's been fun watching those commercials and talking with them with my students. So a reason number 3000 that I love my job. And let's see, reading. I did it out of order. I'm sorry. That's okay. Watching, reading, and listening. <laughs> but I've been reading a lot about Snapchat's new uh, new setup because again my students they asked me they like are so curious and are you familiar with the new snapchat setup um i i did see it but then i actually like immediately deleted my snapchat because i almost never use it oh, okay so, um, fair enough but tell me about it no 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 there's no point it's just uh there's been a lot of consumer backlash and snapchat mm-hmm. is doing it to create more room for the discover feature because they can sell mm. those spots and it's super you know let's make a ton of money driven right and my students were just like in 
like up in arms about it. And in my class, that matters because we talk about media technology. And so right. I've been trying to track Snapchat's public relations responses because we're talking about public mm. relations in class. Cool, cool. And yeah. so we've been, um, it's been very like, they haven't been saying much, but I've been really interested in reading through articles that are talking about like why they did it, why they aren't listening to consumers, like how, yeah. if it's possible that they're going to switch back. So just being a media nerd yeah. as always. Yeah. And then Love I'm it. listening. Okay, this is hilarious. I'm listening to this artist called Nova Amor. Have you heard of him? That sounds familiar. What kind of music is it? Um, he sounds exactly like Justin Vernon of Bon Iver. Okay, okay. And I was listening. <laughs> I'm shocked that you like it. <laughs> I know. It's so ridiculous. I'm so ridiculous. But I love woodsy, high falsetto singing by men. Yeah. I always have. I always will. And I shouldn't yeah. say men, but like that femi masculine right. voice. Right, right. Oh, my gosh. And I think I was on Spotify. And if you're not on Spotify, they do this thing where they just, like, keep playing the music. That sounds like the music you're listening to. And I was like, this song is flipping beautiful. And I was like, who is this? And I'm like, Nova Amor. And I look him up. He was born in 1991, so he's young as hell. Wow. But he looks just like Justin Vernon. He's Welsh. And mm, interesting. That's cool. Plus Spotify. Now I get it. I was Every time I discover yes. a new artist, I was like... I this got you, Rachel. This is yeah. why. Well, WTF. Power. Torn down, full of aching. Somehow, how youth would take the blame. Pulled out the way we let it stay. Torn out to say. 